0: Hello and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. One of the most significant phrases found in the Bible is in Christ. As Jesus followers, because we are in Christ, we share many of the blessings and attributes of Christ himself. As Paul put it, we become a new creation. But can we know for sure we will go to heaven when we die, or do we have to wait until we die to find out whether we got it right or not? Listen today as Pastor Tim brings part four of our series titled, Who Am I?, and helps us understand the assurance we have in our salvation through Jesus. We hope that this talk encourages and inspires you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. Uh, Before our family moved to the Chicago area, right after my freshman year of high school, we lived in a suburb of Youngstown, Ohio, called Austintown. And not far from our house, maybe three blocks or so, there was a pond. It wasn't real big. I'm guessing it was four to five feet deep, but it was just big enough for us to skate or to play hockey. And so just on a couple of occasions, my brothers and I or some friends, we would go to this pond and and we decided to have some fun there with our skates and a hockey stick and whatever else. And before we would skate, though, we needed to make sure that the pond was secure, that it was safe. And so we went all around the pond. We checked various areas. We'd step in various places. We'd listen for ice that would be cracking and, and whatever else. And in some places, we'd actually jump up and down just to make sure that in that spot it was really secure. For some reason, the edges were the things that froze the last. Maybe it's because of the little waves or something. I don't know. But once we determined that the ice was okay, then we would go out there and we'd just have a good time. Now, obviously, our main concern was safety. You know, we didn't want to be like George Bailey on It's a Wonderful Life who falls through the ice and loses his hearing in one of his ears. So safety obviously was the main issue, but the effect of making sure that the ice was solid meant that we could really enjoy skating on the ice. You know, until we had that assurance You know, we'd be skating the whole time and wondering, is this safe, is this safe? But once we concluded this is really safe, it's like that question just went in the back of our minds and all we did was enjoyed skating. Now, Christians disagree about the subject I'm going to speak about here today, and I don't claim to have all the right answers about everything. But I am personally convinced that this statement is true, that if we place our trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and we become children of God, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from that love. That we can have the absolute assurance that when we die, we will go to heaven. We can stand firmly on that truth. In other words, the ice will hold. This truth will impact a lot of things. Understanding where we stand with God and having that assurance impacts a lot of different things about our, our faith and our relationship with God. I think it will impact the joy we have, whether we have a joyful relationship with the Heavenly Father that we know love, you know, has a love for us. It will impact the, the hope and the assurance we have as we're, as we're facing death or when we're with loved ones. It will impact the victory we have over sin. Peter talked about that. He said, you know, if you're not making progress spiritually, part of the problem is that you're focusing on past sins. You're not claiming this good news, the gospel, that through Christ you are forgiven. Your sins are removed from you, past, present, and future. Having this understanding, this security also will impact our gospel message as we're talking with other people. You see, when I share Jesus with people, I tell them, you can have eternal life. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. That is the promise we offer people. Is it a promise that we can make? Is it true that a person can know where they stand for sure? I'm convinced the answer is yes. Now, today we're continuing our series titled, Who Am I? It's a series, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know it's based on a little phrase that appears... In various forms throughout the New Testament, between 150 and 200 times, uh, the phrase is in Christ. A lot of things are true about us if we are in Christ. By virtue of our association with Jesus Christ, certain things are now true about us, and it changes our identity. And so the first week of the series, we talked about the fact that in Christ we're forgiven, and we looked at some theological concepts like justification, redemption, and propitiation, big theological words. But basically, they prove that we're forgiven, or they provide the case for why we're forgiven. Why are we forgiven? How can God, and on what basis can God forgive us? It's based on these things. And if you missed that talk, I encourage you to listen to it. Then we talked about the fact that in Christ we're victorious, and specifically we talked about the fact that uh, sin is not our master anymore. When Jesus rose from the dead, he not only defeated the penalty of sin, but its power over our lives. We can look squarely at it and say, no. Then last week, we talked about the fact that if we're in Christ, we have been set free. And specifically, I mean, there are lots of things from which we've been set free, but we specifically talked about the fact that we're not under that Old Testament law. You know, 613 laws in the Old Testament that they had to abide by. We don't have to do that because we're under a new system. And it's a system that's characterized by freedom, where the Spirit of God lives in us. God's laws are written on our hearts, not on stone tablets, and He directs our steps. But today I want to talk about the fact that if we're in Christ, we are secure. I want to address the question, can we know for sure where we stand with God? Can we know for sure that we're going to heaven? Can we know for sure that every sin we've ever committed is forgiven and will be forgiven it will never be held against us? Now, we're going to look at one major passage here today. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. It's fairly long. And so as I'm reading it, you know, it, it takes a little while. But I want to read it because we're going to look at it twice, and I want it to kind of sink in. And as I'm reading it, I'm going to throw in a few of my comments along the way so that you kind of grasp the arguments that Paul's making before I dive into them. So beginning in verse 28 of Romans 8, we read, We know that all things work together for the good, or my version says the ultimate good, of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined or predetermined that they be conformed to the image of his son, so that he, referring to Jesus, would be the firstborn, which is a place of honor, firstborn among many brothers or brethren, includes both men and women here, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified or declared righteous. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him, with Christ, grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation or charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, anguish, persecution, famine, nakedness or danger sword, as it's written, because of you were put to death all day long were counted as sheep to be slaughtered, No, and all these things were more than victorious through him who loved us, for I'm persuaded that not even death or life, angels, rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now again, my takeaway today is in Christ we are secure. And over the years I've asked hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people, the question, do you know for sure that you will go to heaven when you die? And the answer that I get most often over the years, probably 90% of the time, the answer I have gotten back when I've asked that question, do you know for sure? Their answer has been, I hope so. I've been sitting at at the bedside of someone that's facing death, and I've asked that question, do you know where you stand? I hope so. I hope I go to heaven. I don't believe that we need to hope so. It's like... I. I don't just hope the ice is solid. I was like, well, is it okay to go out there? I hope so. Any of you mothers would be happy if your kids said, well, I hope it's okay. This is so much more important than thin ice. If you are in Christ, if you have put your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, you've been given the gift of eternal life. And Paul makes a wonderful, or several arguments here in the verses I just read. He he approaches the subject kind of like a seasoned attorney, and I want to identify today three main arguments that he makes that allow us to know that if we're in Christ, we're secure. Before he gets into the arguments, though, let's jump into verse 28 as he introduces the subject. He says, we know all things work together for the good of those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. Now, Paul uses two phrases here to describe Christians. They are people, he says, who love God. I mean, this promise that everything's going to work together for the good is for those who love God, so they're lovers of God, and they're also ones who are called according to his purpose. Now, I love both of those phrases because I want you to notice that they cover both sides of the relationship. It talks about the fact that God calls us to Himself, invites us into a relationship with Himself through faith in Jesus, so He calls us and then we respond. And the effect is that we end up loving Him. As I was preparing this, I was just reflecting back on um, when I put my faith in Christ when I was, I believe, five years old and my dad came into our bedroom and, and really just shared the gospel with us you know, he asked that same question, by the way, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven if you die? And I, I believe my answer was, I hope so. You know, and, and my twin brother as well, we hope so. And then he explained how we've all sinned against God. And, and I knew that was true and, and how we can't solve the problem. We needed a, a savior. And, and how this is why Jesus came into the world to die in our place for our sin, he paid the debt in full. And then he quoted John 3.16, God loved the world in this way, or so loved the world he gave his only Son, whoever believes in him. Will not perish, but have eternal life. And I realize that our, our memories of past events can change over time. You think you remember something really clearly. But my recollection of that time when I was five, n- number one, I, I, I see it with real clarity but I had this sense that God was calling me, that, that God was in the room at that time. I just sensed the presence of God was there in that moment. And then I said yes to him, and since that time, I have loved God, not perfectly, but I'm someone who loves God. And if you're a Christian here today, you understand what I'm talking about. Do you, if I ask you, do you love God, you see, I love God, and... Are you a called one? Well, you'd say, yes, I did sense that God reached out to me and introduced me to Christ. Now, if these two phrases describe you, then that promise is true about you. All things will work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And a lot of people, of course, memorize that verse. A lot of people also misinterpret it. Um, This verse is not saying that every thing you face, every difficult circumstance you face, every big thing or little thing will work out for the good for you. It, it looks like it's saying that, but it's not saying that. Because in the context, it's actually saying something different. Now, is it true that God is taking everything in your life and steering it to the good and bringing about good out of it? Yes. I could share other verses that confirm the fact that that. If something happens to you, it's because God's at work and it's a good thing and he's going to bring out good. So that's a true statement, but that is not what Paul's getting at in Romans eight twenty-eight. How do I know that? Well, the very next verse, he clarifies what he meant. All things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, and then he says for, and then he's going to explain what he means. And it brings me to my first point. That God's plan for us, Has no gaps. The subject matter that he's addressing is our standing with God. The subject matter is our eternal destiny. The subject matter is God's eternal attitude toward us, an attitude that began before you were even born, before creation started, and will continue on until glory. That's the subject matter. Look again with me at the verses, verses 29 to 30. Of course, 28, God works everything out for the good. For, how do you know it's going to work out for the good? For, he says, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn or the honored one among many brothers or brethren. And those he predestined, He called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Notice two things about this list. Number one is that these are all things that God does. They're not what we do. And God is sovereign. And so God foreknew. God predestined. God is the one who called. God is the one who justified or declared you righteous. God is the one who glorified you. It's God that's doing all this, but second, it's important to realize that there's no gap in this chain of ideas. A scholar by the name of Dr. Whitmer puts it this way, between the start and finish of God's plan are three steps, he only highlighted the three main ones there, being called, he said, being justified and being glorified, and in the process... Not a single person is lost. God completes His plan without slippage. And this gets to the heart of God toward us because before creation began, you were in the heart and thought of God and He you were in His mind. He foreknew you and then at the end it's this thing called glorification which hasn't happened yet but in the verse it's past tense because in the mind of God you're already glorified from within that statement then you understand that when he says all things work together for good for those who are called what he's saying is you're pretty secure because from the beginning to the end there are no gaps now I have some boxes up here you may have noticed that have some of these theological terms which by the way I'm going to explain the terms in a minute but right now I just want to make the point that there's no gap between them so I have a box up here that has some balls in it I was trying to get some Dolls, so it looked more like people. That was shot down ever since I dropped a baby. Once I had a baby, not a real one. I had a doll up here and I, I bumped it and it tipped over and it became a meme after that. So now they won't let me have any dolls. But anyway, so, you know, this is it. Those got foreknew. So that's, you know, foreknown ones. The question is this what happens to those who are foreknown? For those he foreknew, or those who were foreknown, what happens to them? All of them. Well, it says that they're predestined. I've got to be careful here because I'm not God and I might drop one. But those he foreknew, it says he, he predestined. And what happens to the ones he predestined? You know, those he predestined, what happens to them? They're all, I mean, we're all together here in this, right? What happens to them? Well, it says they're called. Okay, so this whole group goes in here. They're called. And then what happens to the ones who are called? And again, I'll explain these terms in a minute, but it says they're justified. And so they're all justified. They all make it into justification. And then what happens to this group? Well, the whole group, they're, they're all glorified. It doesn't say, well, most of them. All of them, it says, are glorified. And once again, it's in the past tense. And we all end up, whoops, see, now that's why I'm not God. Because I will drop some, he never will. Which is the reason, by the way, that George standing with God is not based on you. Because frankly, if we had to keep it, we wouldn't be able to do it. So, this truth, of course, let's start with some of these words, talk about them. For those he foreknew, he predestined. The word foreknew does not mean to know before. You have to understand that. The the, the Greek word does not mean, you know, I foreknew you would do that, does not mean I knew before. I knew ahead of time that you'd do that. The, The Greek word for knowledge in that word foreknew is a word that means to know intimately, to know experientially for those he foreknew. What it means is the ones that God had a relationship with in his heart before he even created the world. I can't get my mind around that, (laughs) to realize, and I've prayed this many times to God, something along the lines that I can't believe that you knew me before you even created the world. I was in your heart. I was in your mind. That's what the word means. And those he foreknew, what does it say? He predestined them. He predestined them. Now, by the way, this truth about foreknowing and predestining and everything, Ephesians 1.4 confirms it, where Paul said, For he, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us in Christ. Now, that in Christ is the phrase. If you're in Jesus Christ, based on that, based on the response that you would have to Jesus Christ, you were in the heart of God before the creation of the world. But he predestined us. The word predestined in this verse does not mean predestined to salvation. It's not what it means. What does it say? Those he foreknew, he predestined to what? He predetermined what? That they'd be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he determined. That all those that were in his heart, he decided all of those, what I want to happen to them is they'll all become like Jesus. That was it. And then all those that he predestined, it says he called. Now, the word called here doesn't mean just a shout out. The Greek word, again, is a reference to, and the way it's used in Scripture is a reference to a calling, like in an individual sense. A calling by name. Dr. Whitmer puts it this way. Called means more than being invited to receive Christ. It means being summoned to and given salvation. That's why Romans 8.28 calls you one of his called ones. And most of you, I think, if you think of your experience of putting your trust in Christ, you remember when he, he called you. It's an individual thing. It's a wonderful thing. Those he foreknew, those who were in the heart of God before the creation of the world, he pre- predetermined, what I want to happen to them is that they'll become like Jesus. And so for that to happen, I need to call them to myself and introduce them to Jesus Christ. And then we'll respond to that. And then the text goes on to say, and those he calls, he justifies A legal term, it just means he declares them righteous on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. And so you're declared not guilty, you're justified. And then all those who are justified, it says he will glorify. it doesn't say he will glorify, that's the future tense. It says he glorified. Because in the mind of God, the beginning from the end is secure. It's already decided. Nobody slips through the cracks It's an endless chain. It starts before you were born. It continues throughout eternity. That's how certain it is. And if you think about that, what a loving commitment then God makes to us. And so God's plan for us has no gaps. Paul continues, though, in verse 31, and it's kind of a concluding statement based on what he just said. What then are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? That's his point. Isn't God is for you? He's been for you before the world was created. He's been for you forever. In the book of Ephesians, we read that, that we're even seated with Christ in the heavens as we speak. In the mind of God, again, it's a done deal. But there's a second argument he makes here. And my second and third arguments, by the way, will go much more quickly, so don't get too concerned. Number two, no one is qualified to accuse us before God. Let's read beginning in verse 33 again. And again, I'll interject a few comments along the way. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God's chosen ones. Now, the question that would come to my mind is, yeah, who? Okay, is it God? He answers no. God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Another question that might come to your mind, is "A Christ? No, he's the one who died for you. He was the one that was raised for you. He's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. In order to be condemned for your sin, you've got to have somebody to accuse you. So think for a moment, who's qualified to accuse you? Now we know that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, but he's not, he has no moral basis to accuse you. He has no right to accuse you. There's only really one person has the right to accuse us, it's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul goes, mentions two of those three in his argument here. And he makes the point that we can't be condemned. Of course, Romans 8.1 started that way. Remember last week, Romans 8.1, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He can't condemn you. Why? Well, it's this thing called double jeopardy. Last week, I misspoke. I, I called it d- double indemnity. And I did uh, challenge any lawyers to correct me if I was wrong on the term, and one graciously did. It's not double indemnity. It's double jeopardy. Let me define what double jeopardy is. In essence, double jeopardy, the double jeopardy clause holds that once an accused person has been acquitted, convicted, or punished for a particular crime, they cannot be prosecuted or punished again for the same crime in the same jurisdiction. I made the point last week, Jesus took the punishment for us. It would not be just of God then to charge the sins against us as well. They already were placed on Jesus. It wouldn't be fair for him to die for us and then us to die for us as well. It doesn't make sense. But as Christians, we won't even be accused of sin. We have no accusers, is the point he makes. This past week in the Dominion Post, they had occasionally run a list of all the indictments that are out there, all the people that have been indicted for particular things. There were over a hundred of them. You know, they had everything. Some were drug and alcohol related. Some were domestic cases, you know, some involved injuries, some involved deaths. but an indictment is basically an accusation, and every person that is indicted before the court, basically the court determines there's enough evidence to go forward with the trial. It doesn't mean they're guilty, but it means there's enough evidence. They've been accused. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect, those who are in the mind and heart of God? That's the question. And his answer is, logically, it's illogical for there to be anyone. And then he explains why. Look at verse 33 again. He said, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? And then in your mind, you might think, well, maybe God. He says, no, God is the one who justifies you. God was the one who declared you to be righteous. He's not going to be the one accusing you. That doesn't make any sense, does it? The one who already gave you the sentence, not guilty? He's not the one that, now I need to accuse you. No, the answer is no. So maybe it's Jesus, verse 34. Who's the one who condemns? Is it Jesus? No. Why? Christ Jesus is the one who died for you. He's the one who rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death. And and also, he's at the right hand of God right now, interceding for you. In 1 John chapter 2, we read that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That word can be translated a lawyer, an attorney, a defense attorney. It means someone who comes alongside. Jesus is defending you. Why? I died for that one. So the one who died for us in order to take care of the sin problem is not going to be the one to accuse you. So the bottom line is there's nobody. And so we are secure because God's plan for us has no gaps. Number two, no one is qualified to accuse us before God. And the final point is that God's love for us can't be thwarted. No one or nothing can come between God's love for you and you. There's nothing that can come in there. Unless we don't get the point, Paul begins to list a bunch of things. So let's read it. Now, I'm not going to comment much on this one because, frankly, it's self-explanatory. But he asks the question, who... And, and I would com- throw in the comment, or what? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, okay, I'm afflicted. That means God doesn't love me. No, not affliction. Anguish, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger sword, as it's written, because of you we're being put to death all day long, we're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. That phrase may not make sense, but he's quoting Psalm 44, and he's making the point, that god said ahead of time that if we're believers we're going to suffer and suffer for him but that doesn't mean he doesn't love you that's what his point is that doesn't just because it happens doesn't mean he doesn't love you verse 37 no and all these things were more than victorious through him who loved us and then here's his conclusion for i'm persuaded that not even death or life angels I'd throw the devil in that category or rulers, things present, things to come. Something might come up down the road. No, not things to come. Hostile powers, height. Maybe you can get so far away. No, depth. Any created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. No created thing, nothing. Now, I've had people tell me before, I know that you can't lose your salvation by sinning too much or sinning in a big way. But if you, if you decide you don't want to be a Christian anymore, if you, you, you can reject Christ and you can walk away. I don't believe so. Why? Because you're a created thing. It implies you're greater than God. You're not greater than God. This is the love God has for you. You're in, do you know you're in Jesus' hands and then you're in the Father's hands, John 10? And nothing can come between us. Nothing can yank us out of the hand of God. Now I I know we all know people, or most of us probably know people that have. It seems like they knew Christ and then they kind of fell away and they reject Christ right now, and you wonder what happened to them. And some people want to say, well, they lost, you know, their salvation. My perspective is no, they never had it, or the story's not done yet. You know, sometimes we look at a person in a moment of time, but John said this in 1 John 2:19. He said, "The fact that people left us." and walked away from the faith, is evidence that they never really knew Christ. He didn't say they had Christ and lost Christ. He said the evidence that they never had a relationship with Christ was the fact that they ended up walking away, and I think that's the case. So let me summarize and give a couple applications. In Christ, we are secure. Paul gives us three reasons why his plan has no gaps. No one can accuse you in his love. Nothing can come between you. Now, some of you are wondering, well, how do I know if I'm one of those that he foreknew? He said, this is all good and fine, but do I know if I'm one of the elect ones? Because that's, everything is on that, you know, those he foreknew. Am I one of them? If you've put your trust in Jesus, you're one of them, period. If you're in Christ, he chose you in Christ. Based on your relationship with Christ, you are in him. And if you've never put your trust in Christ, I invite you to do so today, to say, I know I'm a sinner, I need Jesus. And you reach out to him and you'll be in the mind of God. If you're already know where you stand with God, I encourage two things. Number one is that this should I think produce within us a real love for our God. He's so committed to us, it's unbelievable. And second, I think it should impact the joy we have. I mean what if we really understood that God loves us so much that there's nothing we can do. And some of you have tested this. You went as far as ways you could and you found God there and you said, there's nothing I can do. It changes our hearts and produces a wonderful love and that's why we are called lovers of God. The words of this song we're going to sing. I love part of the words here. I like them all, but part of the words... You are my refuge. You are my shelter. You are my hiding place forever. I will run to you. I will rest secure in the presence of my Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing gift of eternal life. Thank you that we were in your heart and mind, and we look forward to the day when we stand in your presence. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.